Hey, it's Jackie. And on June 24th, I was standing in the security line at the Tel Aviv airport when my phone started popping off. Do you remember what happened on June 24th? The Supreme Court just overruled Roe versus Wade. And there I was as a Christian and a pastor, conflicted. Because I'm not for babies dying. I mean, who is? But I also get a little queasy when people in power limit women's agency. So there I am in this airport line in Israel asking myself a question I've often asked myself. Who owns my body? That's something I need to understand better. Who owns my body? Who owns the female body? That's what I want to talk to you about today on Jackie Always Unplugged. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of The Marcello Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Well, welcome back. I know when I ask that question, who owns my body, most of our minds go to the issue of abortion. And yes, but not only. See, I'm aware that whenever I tap issues related to the womb, we've got pain, shame, and very strong opinions. And as I said, I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor, but I'm not exactly sure where I land on the issue of abortion. First and foremost, I suspect that the issue is way more complicated and nuanced than I'm aware of, and I haven't done my theological work to take a stand with absolute certainty. And probably more so, I'm acutely aware of what happens to women when the powers to be limit or restrict or lord over women's bodies. So the question, who owns my body? Quite frankly, it's a bigger question to me than the abortion debate. See, in one sense, my body isn't my own. You know, you've heard that slogan, my body, my choice, and it's really cute. But the truth is, there's something about that that's true, something about that that's not so true. My body actually isn't my own. We were created to be interdependent, right? Interdependent. In Genesis, we learn that God exists within community, Father, Son, Spirit. And he says, let us make humans in our image, male and female. God exists within relationality, and it's one of the communicable attributes he passes on to humans, his image bearers. So in Genesis chapter 2, we read, it's not good for humans to be alone. Alas, a she. One more made like man than any other creature, but enough different to create some tension, some friction, so that they would be forced out of self and into otherness. And so if I take my Genesis story, my creation story, literally, if I take it to say something about who God is and who I am, I have to admit my body is not my own because I am made for others. And having studied the importance of being an embodied person, I recognize that we carry out our whole lives in this flesh and blood body. 
There's nothing that we do that isn't done embodied, our gendered embodied. So in one sense, my body, my choice isn't quite right. But here's the rub. I also know that throughout history, recorded history anyway, women's bodies have been controlled by others. And that hasn't and still has, isn't very, hasn't worked really well for women, right? It's a dangerous thing to be an embodied female. Gerda Lerner is an American historian and a women historian, and in her book, The Creation of Patriarchy, she looked at all the ancient writings of Mesopotamian law, including the biblical law, the Hebrew law, and she concluded that patriarchy or hierarchy over women's bodies becomes more evident as societies move from nomadic to the farm. In other words, once you settle on a piece of property, you need labor. Women and children are economic assets, and you need to ensure that the child who inherits your property is yours. Alas, control over the womb. And Lerner goes on to say that the domestic subordination of women provided the model out of which slavery developed as a social institution. Think about that. The subordination of women was the prototype. She says this, and I quote, We know that mental constructs usually derive from some model in reality and consist of a new ordering of past experiences. That experience, which was available to men prior to the invention of slavery, was the subordination of women by their own group. Yeah, let that one just sink in. So ancient laws and customs controlled the woman's body. In fact, there's a book called Chattel or Person where this um, rabbi, she's also a lawyer, she examines the Mishnah to see how women are classified throughout the laws of Israel, right? Were they classified as chattel or person in the Jewish laws? And most often than not, they are, uh, they are categorized as chattel, especially when they are in relationship to a man, a father, son, husband, brother, Pretty much the only time she's treated as person by the law is when she is unattached to any male. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's a whole bunch of ancient stuff. It's just not that way today, Jackie. Okay, let me move you forward a little bit to American history. In 1847, women couldn't vote or own property or divorce their husbands. By the way, husbands could divorce their wives. They also couldn't have custody of their children They couldn't receive their own pay. It went to their husbands. In the 19th century, a young girl could be taken off the street and forced into a brothel. No law against it. As a parent, you could do nothing about it. The prohibition movement was started by a bunch of Christian women who didn't actually have such a big issue with alcohol, but rather that alcohol was causing more and more men to beat their wives, and there was no recourse for women. And by the way, Women being allowed to be beaten didn't change until 1970. And in 1995, the UN put forth a treaty to be ratified by all nations. And you know what it said in that treaty? Women are human. Let me just state that. 1995, a statement. Women are human. Not even women are equal. Just human. And you know what? Some countries wouldn't sign it. Why? Because women's rights are human rights, and some countries don't want women to have rights over their bodies. Today around the globe, it's dangerous to be a woman. Let me say that again. It is 
dangerous to be a woman. In Uganda, it's legal for a husband to rape his wife. In Saudi Arabia, women couldn't drive by themselves until 2018. In August of 2021, the Taliban closed the doors for girls, schools for girls over the age of sixth grade. In Afghanistan, a woman, a girl who was 11 years old, was given over to a man who was 40 years older than her in marriage. She was beaten and raped over and over again, and by the time she was 14, her new family burned her to death. See, this is why I get nervous when powers to be start to restrict and limits, limit women's choices over their bodies. So in case you didn't get it by now, for me, who owns my body, although it may signify to you we're going to talk about abortion, for me, it's a bigger question than just abortion, which in and of itself, we got to talk about that. And we will in the next episode that I do. Um, we're going we're gonna to talk about that specific topic. Um, but for right now, I just want you to step back a little bit and broaden that, that idea for you, right? Who owns your body? Who owns my body? And when I think about what's happened to women throughout history and is still happening today, I have to be honest. I want women to have a choice over their bodies. Now, for most of us listening, we're no longer being taken off the streets, forced into brothels, right? And our pay does go directly deposited in our bank account, not our husband's. Woohoo, we're lucky for that, right? We can go to college. We can get a credit card. We have agency over family planning, right? We can decide when we have children. We can obtain contraceptives. Yeah. Although there's some fear uh, that that too is at risk because of what the Supreme Court decided, that might be at risk. What I am pointing out is we have agency over ourselves, don't we? And we want that. And we want it for our daughters to do too. And perhaps in our freedom, we have forgotten that my body, my choice is about something larger than whether there's a baby in my womb. Not that that's irrelevant. And as I said, I'm going to be speaking to an author who wrote a book called Abortion Policy, Christian Social Ethics in the United States. Yeah, let me tell you something. It's dense. I've had to read it twice just to comprehend before I can even ask him questions. I'll post the title of that on our Jackie Always Unplugged Facebook group page. I would say go ahead and look at that Facebook page, get a head start on some of the articles he's posted, some of the things he said, but I'm going to be interviewing him. I think it's September 26th. So we'll be talking specifically about abortion and what has been the legacy and how Christians have perceived abortion since Judaism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But for now, I want us to stick with who owns our body. And I'm going to take a little bit of a break. And when I come back, I've asked my husband, Steve, to join us. And I want him to share with us a bit about women that he works with in South Sudan. Um, because Steve has seen what happens to women who don't have agency over their bodies today in 2022. Okay, we're going to try this. Here we go. This is always a little bit of a scary thing when you put Steve and I on here together. So, Steve, you came home in May, um, this past May, and you shared some stories with me. And I had been percolating over this question, who owns my body? And so I thought I wanted you to share what you shared with me with my listeners. So 
Tell us what you think about, tell us some of those stories and how this pertains to that question, who owns my body? Okay, I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me back on. Um, I do want to say, before we get started, um, what is chattel? <laughs> it's property. It's like cows and chickens and, you know. Okay, because I'm not sure everybody um, oh wakes up to have conversations like this like we do, so they, they might not know what you're talking about. Uh, Poor Steve. He has to have coffee with me every morning and have these discussions. <laughs> so um, I, I run an organization called Water is Basic, and our focus is, um, is water in uh, diff conflict zones like South Sudan and uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, we like to uh, say that uh, we believe that water solutions should be driven by those most impacted by dirty water, and that's women. So... Um, we have launched a program in the last couple of years in South Sudan to help women be exactly that, the, the solution provider in their community for when their water well breaks. And so in a country like South Sudan, where um, there are no electricity, there's no roads, uh, after 55 years of war, they've had uh, you know 12 years, 13 years of peace, but yet no elections, etc., is a very broken place. And so in most places, in the, especially in rural areas, people get their water out of a, a, a hole drilled in the ground and a, and a pump. And uh, as well, many organizations over the last 50 years have drilled those wells. Nobody seems to be available to fix those wells. And uh, it's interesting because women are the ones that go and get water, whether they have to walk 15 minutes, two hours, three hours, whether it's uh, 70 degrees or 140 degrees, it's women and their daughters who go and get water. And so we decided we had to, we had to figure out how to help them be the solution providers in their community. And, and just in a short, I'll, I'll just summarize it to say, we now are training women to actually repair water wells as a business and have over 20 teams in South Sudan doing that. And it's working quite well. It's interesting because they often show up at a well in a community where five or six hundred people are dying of thirst and say, I can fix that well. And the first question is, well, where's the man? How do you know how to fix a well? So um, it's interesting to know some of the stories of the women who have wound up stepping up and saying, I'd like to be trained to fix a water well. Uh, let me give an example. Uh, one is Elizabeth. Elizabeth is uh, married. Um, lives in a small village in a mud hut with a thatch roof. She's quite happy with her five children. Um, what she's unhappy about is the husband she has who drinks and beats her ruthlessly. Several times she's almost lost her sight. A couple of times she's almost died. And yet she stays in the home. Not because that's what she wants to do, but because that choice is not hers. And so uh, one day she just flat out said to the community, uh, I've had it. I would rather hang myself from this tree than stayed married to this man. Pretty powerful statement. What it did is it was an alarm bell for the community, and so the village elders got together under a mango tree and talked and talked and talked and talked while the village waited to see what they would say. And when they finally came to uh, the end of their conversation and their decision, they made it very clear and very, they made the village aware that it was better she hang herself than leave her husband. Leave her abusive husband. Yes. Now, 
She's got two choices. She can obey the village elders and stay a part of the community and stay with some potential of living, or she can refuse and she becomes a pariah. She becomes somebody that the, that's kicked out of the village. Uh, nobody will hire her, no opportunity to make money. She's, a, she's making a decision really to save her body, but maybe perhaps to force her children to never be educated and to struggle to, to eat on a regular basis. That's the reality. She happens to be one of our pump mechanics, and she is now uh, making enough money to pay for all her kids' school fees, and she's got a roof over her head, and she's actually helping out the rest of her family, etc. It's interesting. We, we're finding that as we ask women and train women to repair wells and teach them how to do it as a business, it's actually the economics that actually give them some freedom to say, this is my body. Right, and so did she end up leaving him at that point? Did she have the ability to then leave him because she now has finances to take care of herself? She actually chose to leave him before she had that opportunity. She made the choice. I'm, I'd rather, well, she already decided I'd rather hang myself. Right. Uh, when the village said that, go ahead and do that, she said, well, I'm just going to leave him. And uh, it was the opportunity to repair wells that made the difference for her and gave her um, agency. Now, let me say, this is a country, South Sudan, where 20 years ago, for a woman to speak to a man in a public setting, she would have to crawl on her hands and knees. And I have been in settings where I've been in the president's um, office where women crawl with a bottle of water up to you to give you a bottle of water. So it's a heavy patriarchal society. Uh, men can have many wives. I once was uh, in a home, light at night, dark, uh, candle lit, uh, where this gentleman said, I want, you to, I want to introduce you to my wives, which was a new experience for me. <laughs> And uh, uh, we went into the living room, and, and uh, here came his wives, and they sat together on the couch, and we were having a conversation, and, and I thought it'd be funny to ask the question, well, how, how many husbands do you have? Um, to which, of course, they laughed. That's not an option. Right. Um, agency is not an option. Right. That's right. So, um, yeah, I, I was going to... ...patriarchy, and one of the things we know from... Studies that have been done through the UN is that uh, the higher there is a correlation between uh, the higher patriarchal uh, an, an organization or a community is, the more violence there is done to women. So um, you've worked in other areas where maybe the agency for women is a little higher because patriarchy is a little lower. It still exists, but it's not quite as extreme where you're working right now, it's a higher level of patriarchy. And so now we're seeing even higher levels of violence against women. There's a correlation between the two. So um, share one more story uh, about, I think you know which story I want you to share, about the woman whose sister died. Do you remember that one? Thank you for asking me if I remember, because I don't remember much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and thanks for giving me a clue. Uh, you know, there's just so many stories of, of amazing women. Before I tell you that story, I, I just want to talk about last time I was uh, in South Sudan, I went to a training for our second group of women. And I walked in the room, and there was a woman in the, in the front row. Did not speak English, did not know how to read or write, but had a look on her eye and a countenance that just said to me, wow, this lady's going to make things happen. Little did I know that in our training, there's a two-week training, and then they have three months off where they survey their land, and then they come back and finish their training. She couldn't wait 
to take the training she had in the first half of the training and put it to work. She had repaired 23 wells in between. Not only she repaired 23 wells, but it was the SPLA, the Sudanese uh, People's Liberation Army, that had come to her and said, we need you to come to this area and fix wells. And she had to ride with them and, and uh, put herself at their mercy. But so passionate was she about her ability to be able to change the lives of people in her community and children, et cetera, to give them clean water. And, and just to see it in her eye, it was, it was just a, one of those moments where I was thinking to myself, how could you ever not fully unleash this woman in a country that has so little, so much corruption, Again, no electricity, no roads, very few doctors, et cetera. We need everyone at the table with all their skills and all their experience and all their abilities. Um, she's making a difference. So anyway, you, I, you asked the story about uh, Mary. Yeah, Mary's kind of a hard one. I'm, I'm, uh, I don't want to just... Um, this is a village where... I want to acknowledge that sometimes doing this work is traumatizing to you. Oh, yeah. Hearing these stories yeah. and seeing these women and knowing them personally, it's painful. Mm -hmm. just, we're, we're here we are talking over a microphone to an audience that, you know, they can't see. And it feel like we're just telling stories. But this isn't just a story. This is someone you know, and it's very painful to know that this is what's happening to people that you care about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's encouraging because we're getting giving these women an opportunity to to be free and to be themselves and be the image bearers God made them to be. But um, Mary is in a village where um, uh, one, a woman she knows uh, as a young person married a man, and it wasn't long into their marriage that uh, he, she was found hanging from a tree. And in this culture, a man pays a lot of cows to marry a woman, and People in the village did not want him to have... It's called chattel. <laughs> uh, it's, called, it's called a dowry. And um, uh, in this village, they didn't want him to have to... Anybody to have to... They all have to come together and give back cows because this man's woman has died. She's obviously killed herself. And so uh, in Mary's family, her parents looked at Mary's twin sister and said, you marry him. And uh, Mary didn't want that to happen. She had a... Uh, uh, as women are wont, she kind of they they kind of knew what was really going on, what kind of man this would be, and she feared for her sister. And, and lo and behold, Mary's sister did eventually wind up hanging from a tree as well. Unfortunately for the man, um, it just so happened that the only people available when they took the body down was the Doctors Without Border, and they were able to see right away this is not a woman who hung herself. That's not how she died, and so it became very uh, uh, aware. The village became very aware that this is a man who is violent and difficult. Basically, he's murdered two wives. Yeah, so he has. But uh, um, here's the here's the kicker. Um, Mary's family doesn't want to have to give back the cows. And, of course, you can't prove that this woman didn't kill herself. And so now they look to Mary and they said, Mary, now you need to marry him. So her choice over whether to marry this guy or not doesn't exist all because her family won't or can't afford to give up um, what little bit they've received in, in the, when her sister was married to this man. And so Mary basically said, here's the deal. Uh, I'm going to marry him, but I will never live with him. And I guess this was a way of saving face in the community, et cetera. Of course, 
that's an interesting decision. That's just like Elizabeth's decision. She's making a decision on that moment to be impoverished, etc. And Mary is now a pump mechanic as well. She is repairing wells. Uh, it, okay, last year, we were able to go visit uh, Mary's village, and we were two miles outside of the village when we started being greeted by over 300 people from the village, dancing and cheering, and they, they, they led us all the way into the village. I've never seen so many elders under a tree. Um, we had, they butchered a bull, which is a monster uh, gift. And then an elder got up and he said, thank you. This woman is saving our village. And I think what's happening is people are beginning to see that women do have something to offer. But it has not changed yet. Uh, and I don't know when that will happen. The full freedom for a woman to decide when to have children. So in South Sudan, if you decide, I can't do this anymore. Many women die in childbirth. It's very difficult. Uh, you can be beaten. So you don't have permission to, ha- to get contraceptive without your husband's permission, right? You can't say no to a husband. Um, he can actually have you thrown in jail. So when you talk about who owns my body, um, dangerous for them to have no agency over their body. That's what we're saying. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think I mean our, our mission is not to give women agency over their bodies. That's not what uh, Water's basic no, that's does. Mine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is to empower them to not have to suffer and actually to bring hope. Uh, and they're the, the, the crazy thing is they're much more likely to show up the next day after well is broken. I mean they're willing to walk miles, etc. Um, I'm realizing more and more that as we seek. Um, that women be treated as image bearers. Uh, there's lots of ways to help that happen. And for us, it's giving them economic ability, economic freedom. Uh, for a woman to say, I'm, no, I'm not doing that, means she can't, her kids can't go to school. So when she makes that decision, if we can give her that opportunity, it gives her more freedom to say no to other things. Thank you. By the way, uh, Steve, uh, literally, um, we're going to tidy up this podcast, and I'm going to get in a car and drive him to the airport, and he's heading to Africa for two and a half weeks um, to spend more time with these women. So you can be praying for him and those women and and actually their husbands and the community in which they live. Um, so I guess what I wanted to do was just before we move into the specific conversation surrounding abortion, I wanted to at least offer this episode to back us up a little bit. And remember, there's a larger question that needs to be dealt with, that needs to be asked um, when we discuss abortion. And that is, who owns my body? Who owns my female body? And how has body politics, right? And if you want to know what that means, because I looked it up, I'm like, body politics? It means the practice and policies through which powers of society relate the human body, as well as the struggle over the degree of individual and social control of the body. So my question is, how has body politics fared for women over the centuries? Seriously, how has it fared for us? And maybe even more importantly, how has the body politicking diminished, defaced, or dehumanized the full expression of what it means to be a female image bearer? Because that's really what's at stake here. So who owns my body? It's a question I've asked multiple times in my life. I've said it to my husband many times. Who do you think owes my bo- owns my body? 
the answer to that question has serious ramifications, and it should make all of us fall on our knees and cry out to our Lord for grace, mercy, and wisdom as we talk about issues like abortion. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.